You're listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes Podcast. Um, Before we begin today's show, um, as we traditionally do, I would be remiss if I began the show without acknowledging the two civil rights giants that passed away this week, um, Congressman John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian. Both of these men worked alongside Martin Luther King and were at the forefront of the civil rights movement. Their fight was relentless. They were bloodied, but never bowed. In 1965, Lewis led a march for voting rights on a bridge in Selma, Alabama. He suffered a skull fracture from a savage beating at the hands of law enforcement during that march. It is clear that nothing much has changed with the black man's interaction with law enforcement since then. Despite that, Lewis kept pushing. Reverend Vivian was the preacher whose calling was not only in the pulpit, but on the streets pursuing civil rights and equality. Vivian participated in sit-ins, marches, and freedom rides. Like Lewis, Vivian led a group of people to vote on that Sunday in Selma. And he said, We will register to vote because as citizens of the United States, we have the right to do it. The sheriff who was opposed to this responded by beating Reverend Vivian until blood broke from his chin. Despite that, Vivian kept pushing. The stand in the face of adversity by Lewis and Vivian is what galvanized nationwide support for the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They were unwavering in their demand for justice. After decades on the front lines, they received the Medal of Freedom from my president, President Barack Obama. Lewis received it in 2011. Vivian received it in 2013. The Medal of Honor is the highest honor that a civilian can obtain. Words cannot express and sentences cannot articulate the magnitude of this loss to the Black community. In our current social climate, when we are dealing with the aftermath of deaths of of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Rashard Brooks, these passings are a huge blow. What comforts us all, however, is the legacy left by these icons. John Lewis left us with the perfect guidance, and his words were, and I quote, do not get lost in the sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble rest in honor to these two kings. Before we begin the show in honor of John Lewis and Reverend C.T. Vivian, we will now have a moment of silence. Thank you. We will now transition and begin our show with our grateful moment. Kelvin, can you tell our listeners what you're grateful for this week? Hey, everybody. Um, you guys want to bear with me this week because my, uh, my grateful moment is more like a testimony this week. I'm grateful that I know that God, um, he still loves me. And that's, um, I say that because in my life, I pride myself on three different things. I pride myself first um with my family being a father and being a good husband i pride myself secondly um with my church walk my christian walk and being a a good spiritual leader and uh also just being a good member and then thirdly i i pride myself on 
uh, being a provider. And I realized like over the last week or the last month, I failed on all three of those things. I failed my family, I failed being a provider, I failed um, my Christian walk in my church. Um, so, you know, I was really hurt. And last night I couldn't sleep. I was up two o'clock in the morning and I was in my room. My wife was looking at me like I was crazy. And uh, she asked me what's wrong. And I said, I think the devil trying to take me out. That's what I just told her, just like that. And she was like, she just had nothing to say to me. And I said, listen, I just gotta go pray. So I went to go pray. And it's one of those prayers that you prostrate, not one of them regular prayers I was praying. I was a prostrate prayer. And um, I went down in the prayer and I was just confused and really frustrated. And when I got up from my prayer, I was like confident. And I was confirming to me that God said, you know, he still loved me. So I'm just thankful. That's my grateful moment this week that I'm, I'm really thankful that the confirmation was made in the midst of my frustration this week. Amen. Amen. Evan, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful because uh, on this past Saturday, we celebrated uh, one year anniversary of my pastoral assignment here in Charlotte, Northeast Seventh-day Adventist Church located in the Hidden Valley community. Uh, it's been a great year. It's been a tumultuous year uh, looking at COVID-19 and how we've had to respond to these uh, unexpected uh, circumstances, but I'm thankful that through it all, the Lord has led me and given me a strong support system with my wife and kids and pastoral networks, but also a strong church that is persevering despite everything going on around us. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Philip, what are you grateful for? Well, I'm, I'm grateful for that. My wife and I on past Wednesday made 19 years wedding anniversary, and it still feel like we're dating and we're friends, and we was talking about it last night. And we feel like we're still just hanging out. We've been just hanging out and be chilling for the past 19 years and all the accomplishments God has given us. And Monday will be my middle child's 15th birthday. And my youngest one, my middle one turned 15 on Monday and my youngest one turns 12 on August 1st. So it's like seven days later. <laughs> so I'm thankful for each one of them, you know, as they grow, my three girls. And that, you know, God has truly taken us from one point from New York to here and blessed us. And I'm thankful for this show. Um, I'm, today's one of my biggest dreams coming true. Okay. Chris, um, tell our listeners what you're thankful for. Well, I'm thankful for uh, this week, well, last several weeks, um, myself and another, a few other Christian brothers, we've been working on a plan. It's really a black a national black agenda and uh it's called neo reconstruction if you know you know the history of our country right a few years after slavery they instituted reconstruction and blacks were given voting the voting rights and civil rights and you had you had almost 2000 black elected officials at that time and then it ended after 8 to 10 years and then that's when Jim Crow took over the South. And obviously, basically for another hundred years, Blacks were in de facto slavery. So the whole concept of neo-reconstruction is we need to uh, play off of that and have a specific Black agenda to you know, empower our people economically, educationally, judicially, and uh, in, in, in every other way. So... In many ways, it's, it's really a, like a reparations package. Mm -hmm. And um, we're taking it, we've been working with some Christians of, of white and black, and white Christians have been responsive to it. Uh, we want to hopefully get them to promote it as well. And then we're also working on it on a secular level mm -hmm. uh, with, with Ice Cube, the rapper who put out his contract with Black America. We've been working with him and his team, and um, we've had economists, educators, and uh, financiers look at the proposals to make sure they make sense. And so that seems to be uh, coming together. And hopefully we want to get this out and get it into the national conversation because we, we don't want to lose this moment. Um, it's fine to tear down statues that of Confederate statues and change names as they should be changed. But if we, if, if 
all we get out of this are some statues torn down and police reform as necessary as that is, then I think we've missed an opportunity because this really, to me, is mostly about tearing down systemic racism in every institution. And so that's what we're trying to do with Neo Reconstruction. So um, it's gathering a little momentum, so I'm grateful for that. That is amazing. And, and I really love what you said about tearing down the systems, hence the name systemic, systemic racism. Um, because like you said, if, if we get these small victories and victories nonetheless, but our systems are intact, um, our professional organizations are intact, corporate America is intact, then what have we really done to address this issue? So I love that. I love that. Um, I am grateful for so many things um, in my life. And this week, I found myself at various moments just taking time to really thank God for his blessings. Um, I started a new job on Monday. The job is amazing. The company rolled out the red carpet for me. I mean, you know, being in public service for 10 years um, in my legal career, transitioning now into the healthcare sector, um, you know, I was nervous, I was excited, but I had my reservations. Um, but God confirmed for me, um, this was the move he wanted me to do. Also, my students, um, I teach at an HBCU, and this week was the last week of classes. And just reflecting as I wrote notes to each, individual notes to each of my students, just having the opportunity to educate um, Black students the next generation, like the, the people that's gonna take the torch from me in 30, 40 years. Um, you know, I'm only 15, so we'll see how that works. But um, people that are gonna take the torch and like lead us going forward is such an honor. So I'm just really grateful for um, God's mercies in my life. All right. We are going to get right into the show. I know the listeners are like, we heard a Chris in the background. Who do we have today? We are so happy to have Chris Broussard as our special guest today. Chris is an internationally known sports analyst and commentator of the Fox Sports One Network and Fox Sports Radio. He can be seen regularly on FS1 Undisputed, Speak for Yourself, and The Herd. He also hosts one of the NBA's most popular podcasts, In The Zone. Before joining Fox Sports in the fall of 2016, Chris worked for 12 years as an NBA analyst and reporter at ESPN, ESPN The Magazine, and ESPN.com. Prior to that, from 1998 to 2004, he served as an NBA reporter for the New York Times, where he covered the legendary New York Knicks and the then New Jersey Nets. Chris's achievements led him to be named one of the 100 Black History Makers of 2012 by The Grill. Chris, so happy to have you on the show and thank you so much um, for answering our invitation. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. I'm looking forward to this. I'm glad to be with you guys and uh, it should be a lot of fun. Okay. And um, I guess to get this started, tell our listeners just a little bit about your background information. Where are you from originally? Um, where did you go to school, college? Just kind of like biographical information. Well, I was born in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and I moved around a lot as a, when I was younger, I lived in, we moved as a baby to Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. All my family roots are in Louisiana, but my father grew up in Cincinnati after being born in Louisiana. And so I lived there, Cincinnati, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Syracuse, New York, even Des Moines, Iowa for a couple years. And then Cleveland, Ohio is where I finished high school. So I lived in like six different cities before I finished high school. Um, and I went to Oberlin College in Northeast Ohio, played basketball there, 
Uh, met my wife there. I've been married 25 years. My wife's a medical doctor. Um, and we have two, we have twin daughters who are 22 and they both just graduated from college. And, um, that's, you know, I live in New Jersey now, uh, South Orange, New Jersey, but I'm in LA a lot with Fox during the NBA season, you know, cause most of our shows are out there, but my home is in New Jersey. Well, shout out to New Jersey. Um, I actually went to law school in New Jersey at Seton Hall Law School. Oh, I live, I live in South Orange. Where exactly. Seton Hall is so it's perfect. Uh, once again, Chris, thanks for being on the show. Uh, my name is Evan. Uh, who were your earliest influences that resulted in you wanting to go into sports journalism? Man, um, I, I don't know that I'd say any individual writers. I, I, I read about sports religiously. Like, I read Sports Illustrated all the time. We, we had a subscription, so I would read that every week. I read the sports pages every week or every day. Um, and I was always a gifted writer. So um, for me, there wasn't one in, sports writer in particular that really inspired me. But I just was always in the sports. And so, so really, my story is, as far as my career, uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I kind of looked around at all my friends, my teammates on the basketball team, my girlfriend. Now she, she, she became my girlfriend, but now my wife. Um, and all of them knew what they wanted to do. Like, some of my teammates knew they were going to – public policies, graduate school. Some were going to law school. Some wanted to be an engin engineers. Uh, my wife, she, she wanted to be a doctor. Like everybody seemed to have a plan and know where they were going. And I didn't, you know, and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got scared because I was like, man, in two, two years, I'm going to have to get out into the real world and pay bills and take care of myself and come up, you know, be an adult, a responsible adult. So I came up with a formula. I took something that I was gift that I enjoyed because I knew I wanted a job that I enjoyed. So I took something I enjoyed, which was sports. I played football, basketball, and baseball in high school, basketball in college. And so sports was really the biggest part of my life before I got saved, and which was my senior year in college. And so I chose sports was something I enjoyed, plus something I was gifted at, which was writing. So I always, it was just a gift. You know, we, we don't think, we tend to think of gifts as athletic abilities or music abilities, but everybody has a gift in some way, form or fashion. Um, and mine was writing. And so I always was able to write. I started writing rhymes when I was like 10 years old, nine years old. <laughs> and uh, I rapped in college and, and all that. And um, so I was always able to write. So I said, sports plus writing, let me try to be a sports writer. And uh, I, I was able to get a summer internship at the Cleveland Plain Dealer the summer after my junior year. And I did well there. And then that really sparked my whole career because of the following summer after I graduated, I had an internship at the Indianapolis star. And then from there I began working in Cleveland full time in the fall. So that's really how my career began and how I kind of chose to be a sports writer. Great, great, great. My question is how's your faith guided you on your journey as a sports journalism? Well, it's just, um, man, just trusting in the Lord and trusting in his word um, has, it's just guided me so, so much. I can't even, I mean, you guys are Christians. I've been a Christian now for over 30 years. It'll be 31 years in, in uh, October. And uh, I can't, really can't imagine even living without Christ. So uh, he's just guiding me throughout everything, but I guess specifically is in the different situations that I've been in uh, when, you know, you may be fearful because you've never done this before. Like when I first got on the professional NBA beat, uh, going from high schools to covering pro sports 
and you're you can be fearful do you have what it takes do you you know will you do it well um and and just being able to stand on the scripture you know that god has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind or you know be strong and of good courage things like that uh and then even when you have you know negative uh experiences in your job and my job is a very public uh job you know on television and radio so when you get criticized you know you need thick skin and uh you can i can always go to the lord uh to thicken up my skin and uh you know just trust in him and know that my identity is not in being a sports writer or a sports broadcaster um and even when you do don't do well um you may not have a good day at the office or at work, uh, just knowing that my identity is in Christ and uh, he still loves me, as, as Kelvin was saying. And also, um, he, he will work it out. As Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good for them that love God. So just being able to stand on the promises of the scripture has really just enabled me to withstand any and every obstacle that's kind of come my way throughout my career. Thanks for that, Chris. You said you, um, you just said uh, a couple different places that you work. Um, so my question is, what was your highest and lowest points as being a sports journalist? I would say my highest point was probably in 2010 when LeBron James was a free agent and he ended up leaving Cleveland and going to Miami. And I really was on top of that, that whole free agency. I, I, you know, I broke the story that Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh were going to go to Miami or Wade stay in Miami. And then I was on top of the LeBron reporting. And uh, that really catapulted me into my, you know, in my career uh, where I went from kind of being, you know, a lot, I, I, my profile was raised. My stature was raised. I had been on television on sports center for a few years but that really raised my stature uh, as a reporter. And then that led to me being on the NBA countdown show uh, for an entire season with Magic Johnson, who was mm. one of my childhood heroes growing up, and uh, John Barry and Michael Wilbon. So that, that, was, that was one of the incredible highlights of my career. I also would say uh, in 2006, going to Africa for, uh, I was writing for ESPN, the magazine, and we were doing a series on how they develop players around the world, basketball players. Because if you remember at that time, the U.S. was beginning to lose in international competition. Yeah. So we sent a writer to Europe. We sent one to South America, to Asia, one state in America. I went to Africa to talk about how they're developing players over there. And that was just a tremendous experience. I went to Senegal uh, mm. twice. All total, I was there about three weeks. And um, I, I would recommend every African-American going to uh, Africa because it was a tremendous experience. And, you know, we get a certain impression over here. A lot of times you just see negative stuff about Africa, whether mm. it's civil war, civil strife, people starving, hungry, corruption things like that. And um, it was really, um, it was eye-opening to see, well, there, there's a lot more, much more to Africa than just the negative stories that we get. And um, so it was great. I went to Gore Island, which was one of the, where they had some of the slave dungeons and went into those and stuff. So that was just, that was probably the most fulfilling experience I had. Uh, whereas, the summer 2010 was probably the biggest moment professionally for me. I think that trip to Africa was certainly the most fulfilling. Um, and so negatively, um, I mean, I guess last summer when I said Kawhi Leonard was going to the Lakers and um, <laughs> then he didn't, of course. And uh, I got a lot of criticism for that, uh, which comes with the territory. And, um, you know, people don't see all the reporting. They don't know all the kind of the machinations that go in and out of a decision because it was very close 
of him going to the Lakers. Uh, and then to, to, to add insult to injury, my, one of my sources, I had uh, – that was the night we had an earthquake in L.A. And mm-hmm. I had gone to sleep. And uh, I woke up after a few hours, checked my phone, and one of my sources had alerted me that he was going to the Clippers uh, just moments before the story broke. Mm. And so if I, if I had gotten that, you know, if I had been awake or had my phone on, on I guess, uh, the sound on it, I, I may have been able to get the story and get it out before it, it broke um, that he was going to the Clippers. So, you know, so you, you have situations like that, like I said, in your career, and that's where you just have to stand on the Lord and um, stand on his word and, and have thick skin. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, we're all happy that Kawhi decided to go to the Clipper. <laughs> I am too, actually. I mean, even, I, I think it's better for the NBA. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It would have been a joke had he not gone, had he gone to the Lakers. Exactly. Um, as a black Christian in the sports industry, what has been your perspective on pro black athlete activism um, that you've seen in the last few years and even within this current climate that we're dealing with? I love it. Um, one, I have to give props to LeBron James because he, he really has started this, you know, back in 2012, I think it was, after the Trayvon Martin incident um, when he and the Miami, his Miami Heat teammates wore the hoodies and posted it on social media. That's really when his uh, career, if you will, as a, uh, as a speaking out on social justice issues kind of began. And then from there, it's mushroomed into all these athletes doing that. Because um, if you think about it, before he did that, there weren't many athletes speaking out on, on social issues. You kind of went through the 80s and 90s and the first decade of the 2000s where black athletes really weren't speaking out for the most part about social issues and particularly ones that faced African-Americans. So I give him credit for that. And I think that's been great. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, I actually wrote an article um, on one of our, we the King movement, which is the organization I run. We, I wrote an article on our website when, when Kaepernick, uh, when he was kneeling uh, during the national anthem about, I, it was something to the effect of what Christians can learn from Colin Kaepernick because I thought he showed tremendous courage in uh, what he did. And I, I believe that because he was expendable at that point when he did it, you know, he was, a, he was coming off the bench. He was no longer a starter the 49ers could have cut him right at the beginning. And when he started protesting, nobody really would have thought twice about it. Mm-hmm. So I thought it took more courage for him to do what he did, being that he was a second stringer at that point and really wasn't a star player anymore. If a star player did that, if LeBron James, Russell Wilson, Pat Mahomes, Ezekiel Elliott, any of them, if anybody of that ilk did what Kaepernick did, they would still be in the league and it really wouldn't even, they may have started a movement themselves with that because it's all based on in these sports, how much value you bring on the field and do does what you bring on the field outweigh the, any potential distraction you bring away from the field. So Kaepernick was obviously bringing a big distraction away from the field. And the feeling at that point was that he's no longer good enough to override that distraction. So um, I thought there were a number of things Christians could learn from him. I mean, he's, this is a guy that was privileged, you know, even if he grew up middle class, he uh, was wealthy or rich because he's a pro athlete, he's famous, he's got everything going for him. And he gave up what he had to help those who are less fortunate, to help the voiceless, to help those who couldn't help themselves which is actually what Jesus Christ did for us. Okay. He's chilling up in heaven, you know, and he came down to help us. And so uh, I also think courageous 
courage. We all as Christians, particularly in this day and age, we need to be able to stand up for our beliefs. And when we catch heat publicly, we can't back down or buckle. And Kaepernick was an example of that. So uh, I thought there were many things we could learn as Christians from him. So I'm glad that the athletes are speaking out. And, um, you know, I, I hope it continues. I think there's much more we could do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think speaking out, like in this day and age, speaking out is not enough. It's nice, but in the 60s, when you spoke out in the 60s and even early 70s, it, you were putting your life in danger. You know, uh, when you think about the guy, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Muhammad Ali, uh, they, they were, you know, they were putting their lives potentially in danger just by speaking out. That's right. And uh, nowadays, that's not the case. Um, calling out President Trump, it doesn't take a ton of courage at this point. You know, you're going to get support from half the country, you know, if not more. And so I, I do feel while I support them speaking out, and I think that's a good step, we've progressed to the point where speaking out is not enough. We need action, and, and we need unified action. Uh, LeBron's doing great things individually. I would love to see that become a model and a blueprint for other athletes, like what he's doing at the University of Akron, where mm-hmm. kids that go through his I Promise program, it's like a 1,000 kids, if they get through it and graduate, they've got a scholarship to University of Africa. I would love to see – there should be 50 black athletes doing that. Yes. You know, Steph could do it in Charlotte. Steph's doing a lot, too. He supported Howard University's um, golf team, golf program for the next several years. Um, so they're, they're doing great things. But if we work together collectively, mm-hmm. we could have much more of an impact. I also would like to see the black athletes be more outspoken – and uh, give more to HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you see a lot of, particularly in basketball, a lot of black athletes give to the college they went to for, they went there like a year. You know, the uh, PWI they went to for a year, they might've went to class for only one semester even. And they're mm-hmm. giving them millions of dollars. And let's keep it real, most of these PWIs don't even need their money. Exactly. And so it's a drop in the bucket to them, but a few million dollars to an HBCU would be huge. Mm-hmm. And even if you want to give to the PWI, then match the gift to the HBCU or something like that. And I think what it, particularly in basketball, that could spark that type of money could really help the basketball programs get the facilities, uh, improve their facilities and things like that. And we saw, we had him on my radio station, The Odd Couple, my radio show, on Friday, McCour Maker, mm-hmm. who's one of the top high school players in the country. He's going to Howard University. Yes. And I hope that that starts a trend of our best, particularly basketball players in the country, going to HBCUs and playing uh, and building up those programs and, and the money that they could bring in from television revenue from playing in the tournaments, March Madness could really help the academic programs at our HBCUs. Um, so football is a little tougher because, you know, facilities, coaching staff, there's such a great difference between um, the HBCUs and the SEC, Big Ten, schools like that, that it's, a little, it's much more of a sacrifice for an athlete. But basketball, you don't need as much of a support system. So, um I think I would like to see our black athletes do some of those things. Uh, but there's a step, speaking out is a good step in the right direction. So uh, I give them props for that. Wow, that was a profound, very profound answer. Um, <clears throat> shifting gears just a tad. Uh, recently, an article uh, was published concerning racism at ESPN. From your perspective, what role has race played in sports journalism and sports in general? You know, I didn't even see that article, that particular article, but I I just think in general, uh, race in journalism, number one, we need more black journalists. You know, it's same as every field. It's played a role in the hiring or the lack thereof in the hiring. 
And a lot of times, if you turn on ESPN or Fox Sports, where I'm at now, you'll see black faces in front of the camera, which is great. But we need black faces behind the cameras as well. We need black faces in the decision-making process. And there are some at ESPN and, you know, ESPN and Fox. So I'm not saying there aren't any, but I, I'm a firm believer in that our presence in corporate America in whatever realm, broadcasting, journalism, um, engine, you know, engineering or, or executive positions uh, at corporations, whatever it may be, our representation should be roughly or at least equal to our uh, population in the country, which is 13%. So um, I firmly believe that that needs to happen. And I don't care if people, white people want to say, oh, that's a quota, that's affirmative action. White people have had affirmative action for 400 years. And we see it, I think sports is a great example where you look at the NFL where 70% of the players are black. The reason that in sports, blacks are very dominant, uh, in addition to, obviously they're great athletes, we're great athletes, but sports on the field is pretty much a meritocracy. Like you put two dudes on a track, on a, on a, in a ring, on a court, on a field, on a diamond, whatever it may be, or two women, it, it's obvious who's best. Right. And the goal is to win. If I want to win, I can't be worried about, man, this dude's black. I don't want him. I, I got to win. You know, so you you'll take whoever you is best, black, white, yellow, whatever. And so that's been a meritocracy. So blacks have been able to excel. And even then, it's a little shaky when you look at the quarterback position, you know, but for the most part, it has been, you know, you've had to take the, the qualified people. But the rest of America, for the most part, is not a meritocracy. It's very subjective. And even in sports, in the front office, in coaching, that's very subjective. And so in those places, in sports even, where it's a subjective, you don't see the black representation that you should. And you can just look at this past year in the NFL. The New York Giants, Phillip, their new coach, Joe Judge, 30-something-year-old special teams coach. Ten years as a special teams coach at Alabama and in the NFL. One year as a wide receivers coach. And he gets hired over, you know, Eric Bieniemy, who led a team to the Super Bowl as the offensive coordinator, and the two previous offensive coordinators who didn't win Super Bowls in Kansas City, both have head coaching jobs. I mean, you see, that clearly was affirmative action. You don't wanna, we don't have to call it that. But he got the job. They, he wasn't more qualified than the black guys. You look at Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona, Arizona Cardinals. He failed at Texas Tech in college. He didn't win there. And he gets hired for the Arizona Cardinals. You go to a higher level. You failed at the lower level. You go to a higher level and get a better job. That's affirmative action. That's a quota. I don't, you, we don't have to use those terms because whites are in a dominant position and dominant, you know, they're the, the higher population. But that is what it was. And you don't hear them apologize. Oh, I didn't deserve it. It was a handout. It was, it was those two jobs were handouts. And that Joe Judge may be great. But if we're looking at qualifications, he wasn't more qualified than a lot of these black guys that got passed over. It's as simple as that. So I don't really want – it's been proven if the pressure isn't on, if the, if the number isn't set, it should be at least 13% black executives in your corporation. They're not going to reach the number. And so um, I don't even know how I got on that, but <laughs> that's, uh, that's something that needs to be done. I definitely agree. Oh, uh, we don't want to talk about the Giants right now. But <laughs> my question is really, and I appreciate you elaborating on that, but my question is, why do you think the NBA is, so, is more progressive as it relates to socialism compared to other sports? To social justice, yeah. Um, I think that there, there's a few things. That's, a, that's an interesting question. 
because um, I, I say number one, the 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 nature of the sport of basketball mm-hmm. allows the for the players to be more recognizable and to be a bigger part of this the game. Like they're not wearing helmets. The fans sit right up on the court. Um, the stop, the game itself lends itself to more creativity and individuality than football and, and baseball do. And so, and when David Stern took over as commissioner in 1984, he made a conscious effort to market individual players instead of the teams. And so every team now in the NBA kind of has a marquee name that you want to watch, even if the team is bad. Phoenix is bad. I want to see Devin Booker. Sacramento's bad, but I want to see De'Aaron Fox. You know, um, every team's kind of – they marketed individuals and, and over teams. And so that has really made the personalities of the players a lot more uh, connected with the image of the league. And because most of the players are black – and the players have opinions on social justice issues, that's become much more associated with the league, whereas the NFL is very corporate, you know, and and baseball obviously just doesn't have the numbers and has never had the numbers of black players that football and basketball have had. So I think those are some of the reasons Adam Silver's a players commissioner. He's close with the players. I think he legitimately cares about the things they care about and justice. So he's allowed, you know, he, he goes along with a lot of that as well. That said, uh, you know, I think you can make an argument. I, I wouldn't, certainly the owners in the NFL, I, would, I don't believe are as progressive as the NBA. However, the NFL has over the last two years or a few years, committed like $350 million to fighting for social justice and to, to come against systemic racism. The NBA has not done that. You know, um, the NFL done it through um, the Inspire Change program. Remember they gave the 90 million to the Players Coalition. And then just recently they, they decided to give the 250 million over 10 years. I haven't seen that type of initiative from the NBA. And also the NFL doesn't have the rule that you have to stand for the national anthem, whereas the NBA does. Now, if the, if the players don't stand during in, their, in Orlando in the bubble, I don't think Adam Silver is going to make an issue out of it. But that still is a rule in their book. So uh, you have to look beneath, you know, some of these superficial, not superficial, but some of these surface level things and really see, are they as progressive as it looks. Now they do, their deputy commissioner, Mark Tatum is African-American, which is great. Um, And he could even be in line one day, maybe to be the commissioner. Uh, So that's awesome. And certainly with their hiring practices and things like that, the NBA has been more progressive, but um, it's not a Shangri-La racially either. It's still a lot of work to be done. We're going to stay with the NBA for a little bit. We're going to um, stick with our relevant team this time, uh, Philadelphia 76ers, of course. Um, and Mike Scott suggested that the NBA should should not have suggested that social justice slogans be allowed um, or the players should pick their own. Um, what's your take on the NBA's utilization of social justice slogans, slogans and uh, nameplates? Well, I think it's fine that, that, you know, they're allowing players to, you know, have a slogan, a phrase, a word on the back of their jerseys. I think that's good. But I do agree with Mike Scott in that I think the players should have been able to choose their own phrase. And I think the way they should have done it, and, and the Players Association was very involved. So this wasn't just the league. In fact, I think the league got most of their suggestions from the Players Association. Uh, so, but I think they dropped the ball a bit where I think what they should have done is said, look, we need your slogan or your phrase or your word by a certain, whatever date was necessary to give them time to put it on the back of the jerseys. Mm -hmm. And so we, we need your, your word, for instance, 
by July 10th or July 16th or whatever, whatever it would have been. Uh, no profanity. Um, keep it, you know, clean. And, and you could have even, if you wanted to, you could have said, don't call out individuals, perhaps if you wanted to. Um, but certainly no profanity. Give us your slogan. And by this date, and then, you know, then the NBA could have vetted it. And most of them, I'm sure, would have been fine. You know, um, and if there were some profane ones, then they could have said, look, you have to choose another one. Uh, we can't allow this. So I think that would have been the way to go. I think LeBron James, who's not, who's having his name on the back of his jersey, he had mm -hmm. mentioned that, you know, he has some things in mind that he may have wanted to put on the back of his jersey. Uh, but And I think he would have had they not been relegated to, I think it's 29 slogans. Mm -hmm. So I would have liked to have seen that. I think that would have, I think the whole purpose of having the net, something on the back of your jersey in addition to drawing attention and, you know, putting it out there subliminally to those who are watching is also to spark uh, a public discussion or thought. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you have something on the back of your jersey, if, if, if a lot of people have the same thing, then it's not going to lead to journalists asking, why would you put Black Lives Matter on the back of your jersey when half the league is wearing that, you know? Um, but if you if if it's individual to you, maybe there's only two other guys in the league with that on it, or nobody else has that on it, then that would spark journalists to ask you, why did you have reparations on the back of your jersey? Mm. <laughs> and then you can answer that, and that lead, you know what I mean? That that mm. could possibly you get to share your views, but it also could possibly spark some public discussion about it too. So I think that would have been the better way to do it. I would have liked to see things like reparations, reparations now, HBCUs, Black Wall Street. There could have been any number of things you could have put on that. I think a lot, again, I'm not criti criticizing, like the things they have are fine, but a lot of them are fairly innocuous. You know, equality, mm -hmm. justice, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, we want that. Everybody would say they want that, you know. So um, it's good. You know, I think it'll, it'll, it'll have an effect, a positive impact. But I think they could have uh, done it even a little better. Absolutely. And keeping in the social justice um, framework that we're speaking about, from a social justice perspective, what should – Black athletes be mindful or leery of when organizations seek to collaborate with them for the cause of justice? Uh, I think you mean, I, I, if, I, if I'm hearing it correctly, I would just say, number one, be mindful of just superficial, um, what's the word, um, just superficial, um, activities or you know like like for instance e even this the the on the back of your jersey that's good but that it's not ending it can't end there you know um so i would just say e e even and look athletes some of them are smarter than others some are deeper than others some are more well read than others everyone's not going to be an expert on social justice and what needs to be done and things like that. So I would say, you know, consult, you know, black leaders, black lawyers, black economists, black educators, people who deal with justice and things like that for a career. That's their job. They're experts. Consult them, you know, when you're, you know, given certain opportunities to link up with certain groups that want to say they want to do something for black people or black causes and don't just settle for the superficial. And I actually think that's, that's true for African-Americans in general mm -hmm. in this time. Like we can't just settle for the tearing down of statues and, you know, name changes. That's nice and, and it's necessary, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And even in November, you know, 
if Donald Trump is voted out, obviously a, a lot of African Americans and Americans in general will be will be happy. But that does you can't re, we can't relax if there's another a new president and think oh th this is the victory. No, this is not this is not started with Donald Trump. This no. was going on well into this was during Obama, and obviously it's been throughout the history of America. So. And then if Trump is reelected, we can't just lose our spirit. Those of those who, you know, wouldn't want, don't vote for him. You can't lose your spirit and think it's over. And we got, no, I mean, we, so we can't settle for little superficial things or minor victories or be, be crushed by minor defeats Definitely. or by defeats in general. Um, so I think that that's important for the athletes and for all of us. Absolutely. Um, so, as I saw, um, Harden and Russell seem to contract the virus. Uh, Harrison Barnes has contracted the virus. Um, Mo Bamba suggested that uh, Donovan Mitchell was trying to sneak uh, a girl into the bubble. And Rashawn Holmes got a busted crossing the line to get some food. Do you think the bubble is going to work or is there going to be an outbreak in the bubble? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, these are 20-something-year-old guys. They're all not saved. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, dudes are going to do what they do. Look, I think the NBA – saying, you know, if you if you leave the bubble, you have to be quarantined in your room, what, seven to ten days, whatever it is. Uh, I think that's a – can serve as a deterrent. And I think your teammates can serve as a deterrent because, you know, that's the thing players have to understand. And, and you know, if you're going to do it, get it out of your system now. Because if you do it in the in, during a playoff series and then you have to – be quarantined for a week or, or you do it and you get the virus and you give it to your teammates or other teams and maybe a, a several players on the team gets it. Like you've now compromised your team or the entire, you know, restart. And so I think players have to really try to, you know, understand, look, I can't be selfish during this time. And it's we're all they always talk about a fraternity, we're a brotherhood, we're a fraternity. You have to really think that way mm -hmm. and say, if I go out of this bubble to do what I want to do, I might give it, I'm a Laker, I might pass if I got the virus, I could pass it on to LeBron and mm -hmm. ruin the Lakers' chance of winning the championship, or or I could pass it on to half my team and ruin our chance. So I just think I hope that guys will be willing to make the sacrifice uh to do what they need to do to keep the bubble intact. And even if they do, there's obviously a chance that something still could happen. But I think you should try to do everything you can to make it work. Yeah, I agree. So you're saying use the snitch line. Um, but <laughs> well, and looking at that, it's like, it's, it's one thing if you snitch on somebody, they're just doing their own thing. It's not really impacting anybody but them. But this is impacting your teammates or potentially the NBA. teammates, the lead. So it's, it's really a selfish thing to, to leave the bubble, to do something, you know, against the rules. If Katie was in the bubble, he might uh, call from his burner phone accidentally his phone and snitch on <laughs> Man, don't talk about KD like that. <laughs> <laughs> but – um. Yeah, that that is the you know it's funny we had John Salmons on the show and he spoke about the TV contract and he basically said that the NBA needs to hit seventy games for that to fill that TV contract so it's definitely important for them to do that. But since you are NBA analyst, NBA expert, who is going to be in the finals out the bubble wrap NBA season this season? <laughs> uh, I think it's the Clippers and the Bucks. I think I, I feel stronger even about the Clippers. Um, I, I think they are the best team in the league. I think they'll win it. I think um, they've got more depth 
than the Lakers. I think they got more dog than the Lakers. They're hungrier. Uh, both teams are well coached, but obviously Doc Rivers has the experience as a champion already. Um, LeBron's certainly hungry, and I think the Lakers are hungry, but they don't have as many dogs. And they've a lot of those guys have – I just don't think they're as hungry as the Clippers. The Clippers want it, you know. And the Clippers have guys they can throw at LeBron. LeBron's going to play well and get his, of course. But they can throw Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, uh, Marcus Morris at him to make it tougher on him. And uh, I think the key for the Lakers, because I think those are clearly the two best teams in the West and even in the league. Um, I think for the Lakers to beat the Clippers, Anthony Davis is the key in that LeBron we know is going to play well. He's going to give us his 29-9-9 or something like that. Um, but because the Lake, the Clippers have guys they can throw at him and they have such strong perimeter defense, I don't think he's just going to take over and totally control the series. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that with him playing well but not being completely dominant of the series, they're going to need Anthony Davis. See, the Clippers don't have a matchup for Anthony Davis. Right. And so Anthony Davis is going to need to dominate the fourth quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that series. And he hasn't done that in the regular season against the Clippers. He hasn't done it for the most part, period, in the in the fourth quarters. But in the last month, the Clip, the Lakers, I think, made more of a concerted effort to try to get him going in the fourth, and he did play well. But in the Clippers, the three games against the Clippers, he's only had eight points total in the fourth quarter. That's three games, 21 minutes. So he's going to have to be a beast mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter for the Lakers, I think, to have a chance to beat the Clippers. The Lakers also lost out in that if this were normal circumstances, they would have – if they met the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals, the Lakers would have essentially had seven home games or whatever – however long the series would go. Yeah, Even right. when the home games were for the Clippers, it would be 60% at least Laker fans. Mm-hmm. And now they lost that. There's no home court advantage whatsoever. And so I think all of those things benefit the Clippers. Um, and then in the East, I like Milwaukee. But, you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see them be upset if Boston is healthy. Um, Philadelphia has talent. I think Philly has the most talent in the East. They don't have the most depth, but they top at the top they got the most talent. But they haven't figured out how to maximize Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons together. And I know now they're going to play Shake Milton at the point and Simmons at the four. And the problem is I, I would love to see him try to go old school and keep Embiid and Simmons near the, near the paint and have your three shooters around them mm-hmm. and try to play that way. Because a lot of teams now don't play good post defense. Mm-hmm. That's one reason Zion's able to just destroy people, mm-hmm. you know, because guys don't really – they're not accustomed to defending post-scoring. Um, and so I think that that could be an advantage for Philly, and then they do have shooters in Tobias Harris, Shake Milton, Josh Richardson that can shoot the ball around those two. But, but instead of that, they'll probably try to play like everybody else, and they'll have Ben Simmons near the box – and that will push Joel Embiid out to the three-point line a lot for floor spacing. Today, it's seeing people act like you can't – God forbid you drive to the basket when there's somebody in the post. I mean, my goodness. Back look at, look at the last dance. Back, back in the 90s, not just Michael Jordan, anybody. When I played at, at the lower levels, when you drove to the basket, you, had, you knew it's going to be six or seven people in there. Your mm-hmm. teammates, other teams – you got to be able to finish in traffic or pass it or something like that. And now they act like if you have one guy posting, the paint is clogged. We can't drive, you know. So they'll probably – that if you look at Philly, when Ben is near the box, Embiid is always floating out at the three-point line. And he might as well be six foot five when he's out at the three-point line. And so um, his best thing is about in the paint. Uh, nobody can stop him down there. And I think they need to make him down, keep him down there for the most part if they want to have a chance to go deep in the playoffs. So Phillies have got a puncher's chance because of their talent, but I'm not confident in them. So 
That is, I mean, spot on analysis, like no objections from me. Um, just to follow up on something you said with the Clippers being the best team and, and the team, in your opinion, that would win it, what do you think a, a championship there, what does that do for Kawhi's legacy in the league? Yeah, that'd be huge. He'd be the first player to technically lead three teams uh, to a championship, three separate franchises. Now, you can argue in San Antonio – he did win the finals MVP, but, you know, it was obviously still Tim Duncan's team. And you had Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker. And Kawhi only averaged 12 points that year. So you could argue that if you want. But what he's done the last two years, you know, leading Toronto, which had never been to the finals, to the championship in one season. Yeah. And leading, if he led the Clippers, who had never been to the finals, to do that, that would be incredible. I'm not – you wouldn't be talking about him as a top ten player or any of all time or anything like that. But now he would begin to be in that discussion of a top 20 player. And then you're just watching to see, okay, how much more is he going to win mm -hmm. and how much higher is he going to rise? So, you mm -hmm. know, it wouldn't be anything like, oh, he's ahead of LeBron or, you know, he's ahead of Kevin Durant even at this point. Uh, but – it puts him in that historic group where you really begin to look at him in a different light. And then like it raises his ceiling, so to speak, mm -hmm. for what he event ultimately can end up being legacy wise. Awesome. Awesome. And so to wrap this interview up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners about, um, the amazing, your amazing organization, the King Movement. Um, just give us a little background and the work that you do there. Uh, thank you for that. The King Movement is a national Christian men's movement. And the name is an acronym that stands for Knowledge, Inspiration, and Nurture Through God. And in a nutshell, our goal is to uh, help strengthen men in their daily walks with Christ so that we can live out our Christ our Christian faith uh, in our marriages, in the workplace, with our fraternity brothers, you know, just 24 seven from um, Monday through Saturday. Or sometimes we even say from Sunday afternoon through Saturday, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, that's really what, what our goal is. And we do that through teaching, uh, support, encouragement, accountability, brotherhood, and um you know training and so what one of the things that led me to start king was that when i i got saved at 21 i was a senior in college mm -hmm. and you know and when i graduated and i didn't really know a lot of men that were living for the lord and i knew men that went to church but really trying to live for the lord in terms of your relationships with women everything I didn't know many brothers that were doing that, especially at my age. And um, as I began to meet more brothers my age that were really living for the Lord, um, I saw that a lot of them, their walks were like a roller coaster, mm -hmm. you know, and you're strong for six months, then you out for three, then you're strong for three months, then you out for a year. And, you know, and it, that's true of a lot of men in general, their walks with Christ. And in one of those down periods, you could ruin your life. You still be saved, but you know, you could ruin your marriage. You could ruin your witness. You could ruin your relationship with your children. And depending on your background, I knew dudes that got saved in jail, dudes that you know, got you know, had been drug dealers, or whatever. And when they when they went through a down period, it was getting back on the streets and involved in crime. And and sometimes they would end up back in jail. And I noticed a lot of it was because some, or some of it, at least, they didn't have that brotherhood, that group of brothers that they could relate to in other, like through sports, through hip hop, through culture, whatever, but who also were Christians, who also loved the Lord and would encourage them in their walk. And so we wanted to, I said, you know, if we could create a group like this, we could support one another. And, um, you know, let really, you know, I'm not out here by myself. I'm not the only one trying to live for the Lord. 
I, I know other brothers, I've heard, learned from other brothers who have gone through the challenges I'm facing and have overcome um, and things like that. So, you know, we know that if we, if we can, I mean, we all want revival. I know that we all want to reach as many people as we can for Christ. But if we just keep it real, if just the people that are in the church, just those of us who name the name of Christ, say we follow Christ, if we really got our act together, it would strengthen our families, our communities, and hopefully, ultimately, even this country. And so, um, you know, we're very concerned about, you know, helping African-Americans in particular, you know, become all that God's created us to be, you yes, know, and, and our communities, you know, like we, we, I say our wing of the body of Christ, our wing of humanity, we want to become all that God created us as, as black people to be, become. Uh, and, and of course, other people too. We're not just for blacks. Um, but we deal, we deal unashamedly with issues facing African-Americans. Yes. Um, but we're for all men. And so um, that's really what we're about. We do community service. We do evangelism. We have social uh, activities and, and, you know, just that families or individual brothers or them and their spouses can get together and hang out and have fun uh, in, a, in an atmosphere in a group that's not gonna, you know, challenge your biblical principles or tempt you to walk away from them or whatever. Uh, and also our group in our new, we have about 12 chapters nationally, but our, our chapter in New York, they led a march, a Black Lives Matter march. Mm-hmm. And they had about 500 people of all races and and genders and and everything and so um it it was powerful so we're doing that's a lot of what we're doing so if anybody wants to know more you can email us at king at kingmovement.com or you can uh check out our website at kingmovement.com thank you so much for that and thank you for being on the show um thank you for your community service and your work in the community um it's it's refreshing that someone with your platform is so entrenched in the well-being of our community and and we definitely appreciate that thank you so You're much welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome and thank you guys for having me it was fun